There's a mid-cap index, a CRS. Yeah, I know this sounds really cool. CRSPMIV1. Don't you love that? What What's the purpose of an acronym when the acronym, one, doesn't make any sense, and two, is harder to remember than the words that you're supposed to be looking at underneath them? Once more unto the breach, dear friends, else close the wall up with our English dead. Good morning again, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to another mildly stimulating, sort of exciting, trying not to be boring episode of the Personal Wealth Coach. Uh, This is Jake McClure, and on the line with me, I have Jeff McClure, I think. Therefore, you are. No, that's good. There's some kind of cart, Cartesian plotting method to determine if you really exist. Could be, could be. It's the XY coordinates in the Cartesian graph. And if you actually understand what I'm saying right now, you get extra points. Yep. You've got all those references. You get extra points. Just, you just don't want to get Cartesian before the horse. Right. Don't put your Cartesian before the horse or things go bad. Don't get so pushy. Well, here we are. Here yeah. we are. This is the personal wealth coach. It's time to start off with our disclosures. Yeah. You can tell them what the personal wealth coach is and isn't. The personal wealth coach is not only, you guessed it, a radio program. I know. It's a little strange. It's also a podcast. If you're listening on the podcast, you're going, yeah, it's not a radio program. It's also the name of an SEC-registered investment advisory firm. Now, investment advisory firms that are registered with the SEC give fiduciary advice. Investment advisory firms that are registered with the state do that as well. What is fiduciary? It means in the truly the best interest of the client, putting their interest ahead of themselves or solely in the interest of the client. But we also do portfolio management. Yes. We also do portfolio management. That The firm, however, does not give investment advice on the radio or on the podcast. Even though we are the main people in the firm, we don't do it. Because we don't know all of you. And even if we did know all of you, I'm pretty sure all of you would not like all of your information shared with all the rest of you. So there's privacy concerns and there's all kinds of things that we're held to a different standard than other people. So what we do on the radio is educate. If you would like fiduciary advice or portfolio management, you need to work one-on-one with a fiduciary or two-on-one if you're, there's more than one. Personally. With them. How's that? Professionally, personally work with them together in some version of communication. There. How's that for legalese? That was not a great legal thing. For no, it wasn't very succinct. Okay. Legal needs succinctness. like, Or at least means speaking really, really fast in a monotone. It, uh, For instance, uh, good legalese is Uh, We're not giving investment advice. We're giving educational information. The information we present on this radio program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the completeness or accuracy of said information. There you go. That's legalese. It's a sync point, and it's not understood by anybody. But it's a bit of an oxymoron in that we're saying we're giving education and we're telling people what things mean. 
And then we do a really fast legalese, something that really sounds like we know what we're talking about, but maybe we don't, but maybe we do, but maybe we don't. We're explaining that. When we find information that looks like it's coming from a decent source, we follow it up to the decent source. We quite often are at the main bureau websites for the different um, departments of our government, scrutinizing the numbers and saying, doesn't look more wrong than usual. Uh, and that's, that's the thing, is that we're giving education. We're trying to give you where this stuff comes from rather than just saying a bunch of numbers. Yep, got it. I think that was the last of our uh, disclosures. Well, I think it was the last of our disclosures. I'll think of something in a minute. Oh, yeah. If you wanted to contact us on the air, you can do so, but you have to use our email address yes. or, one of, or both of them. You can either write to jeff at tpwc.com or jake at tpwc.com. That's Tango, Papa, Whiskey, Charlie, or The Personal Wealth Coach. We already have a question, but we're going to cover the markets first because something happened this week. Not really what? sure anything interesting happened this week, but something happened, and we're going to tell you about it. A lot happened. The S&P 500 stock index went up and down a whole bunch, it, and then at the end of the week, it wound up right about where it started. It actually rose 0.81%, closing at 3841.94 which is sort of interesting. If you're a really detailed market geek like we are, it's uh, it's sort of fascinating. The reason I say that, and we've talked about this before and I've started we started following this in the in the newsletter. There are two sides to the S&P 500. The one well there's more than two sides, but there's two corners. It's kind of a box. One corner in one corner sits the large cap growth companies, mostly high-tech companies that have very high price earnings ratios. In other words, they're very expensive stocks, and they're very large, and they're very huge, and they're big. All of that at the same time. And they have been, their prices have been run up to levels that are not traditionally considered to be sustainable, but who knows. Now, on the other corner sits mid-cap value. Value being the opposite of growth in the stock market, meaning that growth stocks are uh, priced based on what they think somebody thinks the earnings will be in the future. Actually, they're, they're priced on what somebody thinks somebody else will pay for them in the future which sometimes gets a little ridiculous. And sometimes they're just priced because I want to buy it and it's going up, so I'm going to buy some more. Um, value stocks, on the other hand, are priced in the market based on the underlying value of the company. It's called the intrinsic value usually. Sometimes price to book value, there's some technical terms there. Uh, but. Total equity, equity rice, uh, book value, the book to market or market cap. There's all kinds of ways of measuring it. But yeah, it all comes down to do you have assets that's worth as much as what people are willing to buy the company for? Basically, if you were to go out and buy the whole company and you're a reasonable Warren Buffett or something, a value company says, hey, this company is worth at least as much as a stock price and maybe more. And the more patient, more conservative investors tend to buy into the value companies. And the smallest companies in the S&P 500 are mid-cap. The small caps aren't in there. So... There's a mid-cap index, a CRS, yeah, I know this sounds really cool, CRSPMIV1. Don't you love that? What, what's the purpose of an acronym when the acronym, one, doesn't make any sense, and two, is harder to remember than the words that you're supposed to be looking at underneath them? Anyway, mid-cap. we'll just assume this is, this is the mid-cap value portion of the S&P 500. Yeah. Anyway, it's moving, to, it's moving in a different direction. The S&P 500... Uh, is up 2.29 year to date, 
but the mid cap value index I just cited is up um, 2.78%. It's up, I'm sorry, it's up 10% year to date. It was up 2.78% for the week rather than 0.81. Why is that important? Because value in, in when historically at least when market crashes have been in the offing, I love that in the offing. That's um, very British of you. What's in the offing today? The large cap growth side of the S and P five hundred tends to soar into the into the stratosphere, and then the mid cap value tends to sag, which indicates that the underlying value of companies is falling, but people are still buying more of them in the large cap uh, large cap value large cap growth side of the market. Well, in this case, the mid cap value is rising so far this year faster than the large cap growth, which indicates that the market is getting more healthy with each passing week as we look at it, which is a good sign. And it doesn't eliminate the possibility of a market crash, but it certainly reduces it as time goes by. So that's good. Cool. I don't know if it means anything to you, but it's. I think it's good. But, and let's go, let's, moving on from, by the way, the, um, the SP 500 is weaving up and down, bouncing off the tops and lows and zigzagging around because of interest rates and we can get into why the interest rates are causing the stock market to move up and down or but vice versa we're trying to figure that out sometimes it's the market causing the interest rates to move and sometimes it's the interest rates causing the market to move but usually it's just they're both happening at the same time they're not really causing each other to do anything they're just symptoms of the same activity but it sounds less important when you say it that way anyway the the market seemed to have been scared by the 10-year U.S. Treasury note yield, which was up to 1.567%. Now, it's good to remember that at the beginning of the year, as, as the year began, December 31st closed out, January 1st rolled around, the 10-year U.S. Treasury note was yielding 0.91%. Now it's up to almost 1.6%. That is a big jump. It's about a 70% rise year wait, to date. Wait, wait a minute. For those of you that aren't economists, which is like, probably everybody that's listening. When we say it's a big jump to go from 0.9% to 1.57%, and you're like, uh, no, those are still like single digit numbers. What, why are you talking about that? Can you explain why that's a big jump? Because I, I think people hear us say that and they're like, what are you talking about? A big jump, that's barely, a, it's less than a percentage point up as far as the interest rate goes and you call it a big jump. What, what are you... Well, it's a 70% rise. That's like saying that the Dow was at 1,567 and it had been at 910 at the beginning of the year. Right, exactly. It's that big. I think it's people just, miss out on it because we're talking interest rates. They miss the total point that this is a huge leap in interest rates. Uh, it, the interest rates rose quite a lot. And there was an assumption in the, at least according to the Wall Street Journal reporters, the traders are reporting there's an assumption that maybe the bond market knew something that the stock market didn't know. In other words, the traders in the bond market may have known something about future inflation. Not that anybody really understands future inflation, including the Fed, but uh, that caused the stock market to drop because higher interest rates, particularly for the high tech companies, can be rough because when things get bought, in many cases, they're bought with borrowed money and the higher interest rates go, the more difficult that comes. Oh, that, that happens. And it, matter of fact, it was there's other interest rate information that's uh, pretty important this week. But inflation, the Fed, the Chairman Powell spoke about inflation this week, and he said that he expects a little bump in inflation, but it's short term. There's a very good reason for it, and there is. We can talk about that. It's logistics. Stock market finally 
traders finally remembered that recently, the end of 2018, the 10-year Treasury note was yielding 3.28%, which is a pretty standard yield for the Treasury T-note. And we had 1.4% inflation, which is just exactly what we've had year over year right now. So they suddenly realized that maybe 1.567 is not that much. And then the market returned right to where it's began the week or very nearly where it began the week. But the value stocks inched up a little further. And there's a reason the value stocks inch, inched up further or inched up. They were up 10% from the beginning of the year, which is pretty impressive at this time of year. The simple fact is higher interest rates are generally generally generated. I like that. Generally generated by increasing loan demand or anticipation of increasing loan demand. Why is there increased loan demand? Because there's more economic activity. People want to buy things. They want to build things. They want to borrow money to do it. And that causes interest rates to go up because the demand for loans goes up. So if there's a lot of demand for loans, the banks and, and everybody else can charge more interest. And if there's no demand for loans, they charge less interest. And so as interest rates go up, it's a good sign. By the way, the uh, the ten year Treasury note yield, which is an indication of where the economy is in many ways, is now higher than it was in 2019. Very more interesting than that to me is the thirty year Treasury bond yield is well above where it was in 2019. This would suggest that we have an accelerating economy, which is the reality that we see elsewhere. Yes. So we're seeing the, the economy start to take off, which means more people are getting loans, which is a more a greater demand on that money. We're also seeing the price of a bond portfolio drop. People are nervous about this. They've been, you know, I'm going to go to bonds because the stock market uh, is acting funny. And they've done that this year. A lot of people have. A lot of people went to bonds, which is part of the reason why interest rates were so low. A lot of money was there to be loaned out. That's what a bond is. When you put money out there to be loaned to a corporation or to the government or to a municipality, that's a loan. It's a bank account is a loan to the bank. So when you put a deposit at the bank, you're, if you get any interest at all, it's because you're loaning money to the bank. The reason why you don't generally get a lot of interest is because that's called a callable loan. It means you can just call up the bank or write a check and they have to give you your money. So they don't pay a lot of interest for short-term callable loans. Okay, a lot of people have money in cash and in bonds, and then the loans start coming in, and people are like, I really need some loans, so there's some more demand than usual, which causes interest rates to go up. But the people that are already in the bond market, they bought bonds that had lower interest rates. They made their loans for lower interest rates. So these bonds that have the higher interest rates, that's more attractive. Wouldn't you rather have a higher payment for the money that you, wouldn't you like to have a higher paying interest rate at a bank? Uh, this causes people to want to move to a different bank. Well, that causes interest rates to go up more because there's now selling of pre-existing bonds on the open market. People are trying to get cash out of the bond market. Well, that means less cash, supply demand, that means the cash is more expensive. That causes interest rates to go up again. This is also the reason why the market goes up at this point. A lot of times people sell out of the bond market and take their money over to stocks, just like we had the reverse of that. The bond market just jumped like a rocket ship when the stock market dropped. 
And now we're seeing a little bit of the reverse of this. It's not always that they go opposite each other. But in cases like this, when we see it happen, it's kind of right out of the textbook. And people are generally shocked by it, but that's what's going on. When you're selling out of the bond market, it means less money's in the bond market so they can charge more money for it, for making loans. And it makes it easier to put the money in the stock market when you've just lost money in the bond market. So that's really what we've seen happen this week. Uh, it's, it, this is, it's rare that we can look at behavior of people and go, this is a pretty simple one. Uh, but in this week, it's been pretty simple. You have more of the market? Yeah, there's a third indicator we use for what's going on in the economy. And generally speaking, when they all agree, that's a pretty good prediction. And that is that the price of oil. The price of oil is generated both by supply and demand, but supply is relatively inflexible. In other words, it takes a while to pump more oil into the system or for oil wells to be drilled or for the Saudis to turn their spigots back on and get things flowing again because it has to get in the ships and then has to come over to wherever it's going to go. And it's a slow process. So mainly the price of oil is driven by demand, or in this case, anticipated demand. And what's happening apparently in the economy right now is the demand for oil is rising faster than the production of oil. So oil was up, West Texas Intermediate crude was up to $66.32, which is pretty good. It's a 7.56 rise to the week for the week. It's up 37% year-to-date again. So we've got both the bond market and the oil market saying uh, things are not only picking up, but in both cases, they're higher than they were in 2019, which indicates that the market, the bond, the, the commodities markets, well, actually, it's also occurring in copper and aluminum and other places too, but the markets that forecast effectively historically what's going on in the economy or anticipating a boom in the economy. And they generally forecast about six months out. So what they're saying in essence is collectively oil traders and bond traders are suspecting we will see a pretty dramatic increase in the health of the economy in the second half, which is a good sign. The yield curve continues to be quite steep. All the traditional tea leaves that we read to say, hey, where is, say, hey, here, where is the economy going to be in six months to a year, are all telling us the same thing. They're telling us the market, the market-based indicators, the tea leaves, are suggesting we're going to have a pretty healthy second half. Well, pretty healthy, quite healthy second half. The question is, what are people going to do with all the money they've got socked away? And if right. people li- literally in the United States right now in savings accounts and checking accounts, there's literally $1.4 trillion of excess savings. People do that when they get scared. When, they, when people are convinced, historically, when they're convinced the crisis is over, now when that'll be, that's anybody's guess, but basically when COVID is no longer a news item, uh, they're probably going to spend that excess $1.4 trillion. Now what happens at that point is a matter of economists to make reasonable guesses as to what's going on. But the the issue is that it looks from here like we're going to have a pretty good pretty good boom in the economy. The forecast for GDP this year by various economists, which doesn't necessarily mean it's correct, but it ranges from about the high low of about six point four percent GDP growth this year. Well I actually there's a couple of them that are still saying four point seven. 
but it goes all the way up to as high as 9.5% as a possible GDP growth in 2021, which is a boom by anybody's standard. Now, oddly enough, that won't quite catch us up, but it'll get us pretty close. All right. Uh, does that cover the markets for the week? Yeah, at least part of them. All right. Well, we have a question out here that hits my, me right in the sweet spot. It's a perfect question. How much of a negative impact will birth rates have on bonds versus all the other factors? Okay. I'm going to make this a broader question than it is because this comes down, people talk about supply and demand and they act like that is the fundamental truism of economics. And it is it is extremely important, important, don't get me wrong, but it fits with two other factors in the economy that are just as important and rarely talked about or talked about without them being paired up. And one of those is fecundity. Yes. So it's one of, that's my word of the day is fecundity. Uh, yes. So what it comes down to simply put is that supply and demand are based on something else. And that something else is demographics and productivity. And now we're getting into words that are less often used, demographics being the fecundity thing, productivity. You hear us talk about both of these subjects. We don't come out and label them very often. Demographics means what's the workforce look like? What does the economy's population look like? How educated is it? Is it growing? Is it shrinking? What's its age? The younger and more educated it is, the more likely it is that that economy will have good growth. Does that, that's common sense. I think anybody that hears, they say, hey, Austin has a, a young, educated workforce. Well, you can see that that's a precursor to good growth. Somebody was talking about that a year ago. It's a precursor to traffic jams. Uh, yes, and traffic jams. Um, traffic jams are definitely part of growth in Austin. So when we're talking about negative effects of birth rates, this article that was sent with the question is an article that's talking about a baby bust. Uh, at the beginning of this, a full year ago now, uh, well, I guess you know, in two weeks, it'll be a full year that we had this conversation on the air. Um, I, I brought this up and I said, hey, we don't know if this is going to be a baby boom or a baby bust. A lot of people are at home with nothing else to do. But at the same time, usually when people are scared, they don't make a lot of babies. Well, we're having a baby bust. Uh, the, the news on the subject is that uh, the Brookings Institute, which is a pretty good, pure research firm that's not really into politics what's more uh brookings institute as well as uh, a whole series of economics professors across different areas um so the people in the brookings institute that did this was dr kearney who's an economics professor at the university of maryland and dr levine who's at uh wellesley college an economics professor there so again, you're talking about birth rates. What are economists doing in a study about birth rates? Shouldn't this be a medical thing? We get this a lot when we talk about COVID as well. The danger to the economy when you're talking about demographics is so clear that it's part of the, the 
if you can call it science of economics it's there's a lot of art in this science still it's becoming more of a science the concept here is that we expect 300,000 fewer births for 2020 than we did in 2019 that's the equivalent of one month's worth of births is that across the globe no that's in the united states across the globe it is significantly higher than that china alone expects 10 million fewer births than last than the year before 2020 from 2019 um the overall uh i'm sorry 3.8 oh no i was right 10 million births down um uh well i guess they dropped 1.8 million births so it was a, a drop they only had 10 million births last year go ahead china is in a world of hurt and we've been talking about this for years the fact that their one child policy put them in a position where they were having a birth dearth. I like that. They have a low fecundity of birth dearth. Yes. Their demographics don't look good. In 20 years, it's not a really good look in China right now unless they can automate near 100%. It's kind of like happened in Italy. Very very similar to what happened in Italy. Italy was really proud of the fact that at one year their GDP exceeded that of Great Britain or United Kingdom or England. Actually, United Kingdom. Yeah of that and they made a big celebration about it and then they promptly dropped back and they dropped back for one reason not because they weren't spending money not because they weren't making things not because they stopped making ferraris or anything like that because they stopped having babies and as a result their economy began to decline and they've gotten in some deep trouble since then and remained right on the edge of insolvency at any given point and the biggest single reason they're on the edge of insolvency is because they're just not having enough children they're having like point I think it was 0.4 or 0.6 per family recently in, in Italy. And to yeah. the point there, they're it, big. It's a, yeah, I think it's like it, the, the fertility rate that's most widely used uh, is uh, it's, it's based on the average number of lifetime births for a woman. I don't know why they don't add it for a man too, but there's maybe something scientific involved there. Who knows? Why do men aren't having babies these days? But um, in Japan, for instance, in 2019, the the fertility rate was 1.36. The United States is just below two. Now, what's magical about the number two is that it means it's an equilibrium for the population because there tends to be another person involved in the fertility situation there. So when you have a two per woman, it generally means that there was a partner involved as well. So there's two people. So you're replacing the population with a two. We're slightly below that in the U.S. and the U.K. Uh, Japan's at 1.36 in 2019. It's more likely it it dropped significantly to like 1.3. And I know that sounds like only six one hundredths of a percent. For that to happen in one year is it's massive. It's a really, really big shift. That tends to happen over a decade and a half to have that kind of a shift. So coming out of this, the the impact is going to be something big. It's it's following a trend that's already there. The, the European Union as a whole, including the UK in that number, because they were part of it when the measurement was going on, their population is shrinking. 
the population of China is shrinking. The population of Japan is shrinking. The population of the United States up to about 2017 was growing because we were keeping the birth rate relatively level, and then we had immigration. Well, immigration has, is not adding significantly to the population at this point. I know that sounds weird because there's so much in the media about immigration and illegal immigration and how many people are here that are illegal immigrants. They're not coming in every year. You know, the number on illegal immigrants has been flat between 11 and 15 million for about 20 years. So if you think about that for a minute, you, you can see that we're not having massive waves only in the ingress direction. We've had waves going out as well. So we've got an equilibrium on illegal immigration as well. What is the long term on this? Well, if you have a lower population, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going down the tubes, as long as you continue to educate them better than the generations before. That's a big that's a big as long as. That is a, it's an important factor. If we're not educating better than we did before, then the economy is going to shrink and it's not going to get better. <laughs> it's not just the economy shrinking in terms of number of workers. It's the fact that we get older. Uh, we, China has an aging population. Japan has an aging population. The United States is right on the cusp of having a seriously aging population. And what happens with an aging population Older workers tend to be less effective, and they tend to retire. And when they retire, somebody's got to support them. That means that more and more of the resources of a nation, as the population ages, are directed towards taking care of old people and not making new things. We hope. We hope. There are times in history where that was not the case, and then you just had die-offs in the elderly. And that was kind of normal throughout a big chunk of human history. We hope that we're avoiding that now which means that it's going to slow down the economy. So the point is, very frankly, the bottom line to the United States economy continuing to grow is to have more immigration. I know that's not very politically popular at this point, but the bottom line to it is still the same. Either we have a population where young, childbearing age people are coming into the country at a significant rate to resupply our population so there'll be more people to pay taxes in the future so that we'll have more productivity in the future, or we... Replace everybody with robots, which we're not ready to, to do yet. Yeah. Um, we're not ready for that by a large stretch. I get a lot of questions about, you know, whether electricity is the future and so on. Yes, it is, but it's not quite here yet. It's coming. In a decade and a half, I suspect most cars will be electric, but we're not there yet. So don't worry too much about buying the best electric vehicle today. Let somebody else be at the bleeding, bleeding edge of technology and watch it break a little bit before jumping in. Um, yes. Did you mean electric or self-driving? Both. I meant electric. Uh, in, uh, for, specifically for that, the electric side of things, that is the majority of self-driving. There are some self-driving uh, internal combustion engines but those become more difficult for computers to control because there's a lot of variables in there. Just so back to that question, John. Thank you for for being such a loyal questioner. Um, your your questing is is legendary among the personal wealth coach. Uh, how much of a negative effect will birth rates or negative birth rates have on bond rates in the future? And the answer to that 
has a lot to do with if we continue to increase education in a population. Because if they're at the same level of education, the same level of earning potential, but more expenses are coming for an aging population, that's going to cause interest rates to go up. Because the government's going to want more and more money to spend on things like Social Security and so on. They're going to borrow money for this if they have to, if they can. And the more they demand to borrow, the more people can demand as an interest rate. Now, that that is a very long-term trend. And there are places where you can see the opposite occurring. Japan's a great example of that. But Japan has done a great job while having a shrinking population, of better educating each individual as they rise up. So this is one of the only times that I can, it's the only time in history that I can find, besides the Vikings, which had a very different cause, where a population in a country was shrinking, but their net worth at, at the individual level, we say the per capita GDP earning potential or the per capita net worth, their individualized net worth was growing. So each person on average in Japan is doing much better than their parents did at the same age, but the overall economy is smaller than it was in their parents' era. The GDP has shrunk this is where the, we would normally say, the GDP has experienced negative growth in Japan for decades. But the per capita GDP, each person's individual share of that earning has been growing. That's a direct result of productivity increases, education being a big chunk of that. Automation, it's not a rumor. Japan is one of the leaders in the world and automation they have had a uh, love affair with robotics uh, since, since I've been alive. Uh, their entire um, entertainment system is built around robotics and, and how much they appreciate it. They're going the right direction for a shrinking population. Will we? Will China? China is pushing the accelerator down to the floorboards, trying to get automated as fast as they can because they recognize their population shrinking. They're no longer on a one-child policy. They're trying to encourage people to have more kids, but they may have permanently affected the culture. It's shameful to have more than one child in China right now, even right now when it's not a policy. There's an important thing about China. You do the projections, you find that China, based on their declining birth rate, eventually passes the United States for GDP and promptly slumps back like Italy did. So we've said this for a long time. There's no long-term, and I mean really long-term, danger of China dominating the world. They're just not having enough babies. They're going to have a lot of very old people. They don't have a social security system. They don't have a pension system. It's, a, tra it's a, a traditional system where the kids and the grandkids take care of the grandparents. However, this is a, a, a demographic truism right now because of the length of time that the one-child policy was in effect and the... Uh, fact that culturally it's still there even if it's not a legal thing one child is typically the on average each child has four grandparents that have no other grandchildren so who's taking care of the grandparents if that child has to take care of their parents and four grandparents then you throw in the fact that a significant majority of those 
single children or males. Yeah. Then you throw in the fact that the government has now passed a law in China. And by the way, you can go to prison for failure to obey this law, which I think is hilarious. Because how are you going to support your parents if you're in prison? So the law is you've got to support your parents in their old age. Right. And you've got to. You don't have a choice. And so this is going to cause things to fall off rather dramatically. It is already starting to have an effect on China. We're seeing that in that the productivity rate, which has been growing and growing and growing, you're seeing the odd anecdotal information about trying to motivate young men. It's hard to motivate young men when they outnumber the women so much and they really have no other big incentives. I mean, what motivated you as a young man? What would, what would you say motivated you the most as a young man? Uh, I may be an outlier, but it was getting married and having children. I don't think that's an outlier. You, most young men are motivated by young women. That is, I know this is demographics. This is a tough one to, to jump over, but this is a piece of the problem here. And I realize we're taking economics and, and almost cartoonifying it here, but it's true. Uh, when you want to motivate a young human, you usually do it by introducing them to other young humans. And if they are attracted and wish to bond with that other young human, they even get more motivated long term. Uh, when people are married, they tend to be more productive. Productive. When people have own their own home, they tend to be more productive. Well, what's motivating that? It's generally that they're bonded with another young human. Well, that's not happening as often in China. So there's some, some bigger, and these seem like they're vague. What is that about? It's not tea leaves. This is human behavior, and these trends have a it, it's really hard to find a place where these trends don't turn up correct. The question was about bond yields, and the article in the Wall Street Journal made a very good point, and that is the as birth rates fall, so do bond yields historically. Yeah. And, and one of the reasons that has been given for the fact that we can't seem to get inflation up to the 2% level that the Federal Reserve would like is the fact that we're getting older. Older people spend less money than younger people as a percentage of their income. They tend to save more money. They tend to spend less money. They tend to buy cars less often, and they tend to stay in the same house or sell and downsize, which causes less of a demand on the economy. And so that means interest rates will probably never go back to 15% like we saw in the early 1980s. Wait a minute. Famous last words. Let's, let's knock on some wood or something. That's a possibility. It's not a certainty, but a combination of globalization and low birth rate tend to work together. We had a high birth rate. We had the baby boom coming of age, buying mm -hmm. things. Uh, we did not have globalization, which meant if something was made in the United States, it was a pinch. There could be much more demand than there was supply, and the supply was hard to find because of labor. Labor was one of the things that drove interest rates up. Yeah. Now we can, if it gets too expensive in the United States, you can buy it from China or India. Right. And uh, there's some other demographic stuff that we can talk to you about. If you'd like to talk to us or ask us a question. We've got email addresses, jeff at tpwc.com or jake at tpwc.com. That's Tango, Papa, Whiskey, Charlie, or The Personal Wealth Coach. And we'll be back on the other side. And we're back with more of the personal wealth coach. We're talking about the birds and the bees. 
We're talking about demographics, population shifting, and the economy. Today's program is brought to you by the word fecundity. Yes. Where in this episode, you may hear Jeff say... The birth rate is down. That, that was less expired. Come on, you got to say at least it with a radio voice. The birth rate is down. There we go. Now, now it sounded impressive. Breaking news. The fecundity rate is down across the globe and in the United States. Now, there's some other pieces of news. I mentioned them in the middle of the year last year, but it was in the middle of some other big events going on. Like the whole of 2020 kind of goes as a blur and people don't remember big news because it wasn't as big as there's a lot of people sick. Uh, And that news is that in the workforce last year, the baby boomers are no longer the largest group in the workforce, the largest single entity. The millennials now outnumber the baby boomers in the workforce. And what does that mean? It means that there is a big transition going on, and that's speeding up during this time period. A lot of early retirements took place in the baby boom generation during the pandemic, where people said, I don't want to work remote. I don't want to learn this new Zoom thing. I have been doing the same thing, and I've been good at it my entire life. I'm ready to go. I was going to go next year or two years from now anyway. I'm done. And that's a big part of the numbers that we see in employment. There are a a pretty good chunk of people who have left the workforce and are no longer working, looking for jobs during this time period. There's a chunk of people that have left the workforce that wish they could have a job and are also not looking for jobs for other reasons, like that one of them has to stay home for childcare purposes or whatever. We're going to see some of that stuff even out over the next coming coming years, but it's pretty permanent when people semi-retire or retire fully or early retire. It tends to bring them completely out of the workforce. Some people return, but the vast majority do not. What, what is that? That's all demographic. That means that the younger generation is going, to taking, is going to be taking more and more of a leadership position. And it's kind of fascinating. You can see it happening in politics. You can see the number, the average age of Congress went from uh, the oldest it's ever been recorded. It's starting to drop. The age of Congress is shrinking. Now, the, the age of the president is still, no matter who was elected this time around, we would have had the oldest president in the United States history. So we have that. We have the oldest president in the history of the United States. Just a couple of years ago, we had the oldest average age in Congress in the, Congress in the history of the United States. All of this fits together because you're seeing the same thing in the corporate environment. You're seeing youngering taking place, this doesn't happen very often, especially when you have a population that's shrinking. This is kind of a weird thing. You have a shrinking population because we're not having as many babies, but the workforce is getting younger. It's because there's a delay from being a baby to actually being in the workforce. I know that's weird. We should be getting these illiterate children to work as soon as they're born. They're They're just draining the system no, I'm obviously being a little facetious there. They're pretty good consumers, though, right after they're born. Yes, they are the ultimate consumers. 
a uh, high demand. <laughs> a bit about the economy, I think, is important. We got about five minutes left. By the way, you can get us to comment about something that you have to say. If you were to send an email to either Jeff or Jake at tpwc.com, and we'll receive the email and talk about it on the air. Um, we want, may want to talk about this a little more. There's two sides to our economy right now. There's something called the ISM Non-Manufacturing, ISM Manufacturing, uh, Institute for Supply Management, by the way, is ISM. So manufacturing and non-manufacturing. That's what we're talking Indi about. Index. We have two indices, one of which covers the service side of our economy, and the other one covers the manufacturing side of the economy. The the non-manufacturing index, which is the service side, slipped from 58.7 to 55.3. Now, 50 is the neutral point. Anything above 50 indicates growth. Anything below 50 indicates shrinkage or contraction. Negative growth. But the manufacturing jumped up to above 60, 60.8. We have a manufacturing side to our economy that's running full tilt right now. They're complaining about not being able to find enough qualified workers. They're not, they're, uh, being stymied by the fact they can't get enough computer chips there. And interestingly enough, their productivity has risen dramatically. It's risen, uh, uh, let's see, rose 5% in the fourth quarter of 2020. Out output in manufacturing rose 13% while hours work were only up 7.6. That's huge. The other, That's a really, really big deal. But two-thirds of our economy is services. And services is anything that people do for one another rather than manufacturing something to be sold to somebody else. And in that two-thirds side, the productivity has fallen far enough that our overall productivity in the first quarter dropped by 4%. Now, that's, that's a big drop for a single quarter. And what's wrong? Well, it, a lot more work goes into delivering a meal to you if you're not eating in the restaurant. And that's in a nutshell. There's a lot of other things that go on. Uh, things being delivered. If you buy something, you go to the store and you buy something uh, at Best Buy or Lowe's or someplace, that's cool. But it doesn't take a lot of worker hours to get the stuff in your hand. It's just a cashier to check you out. But we're not doing it that way. We're having it delivered. That means more worker hours to achieve the same output, which means productivity is falling over there. We have two sides of the economy. And the unemployment, the financial pain, and all the bad news is occurring over in the service side. The manufacturing side is going full tilt. And I do mean full tilt. They are, they're running up against constraints due to supply. And logistics. Logistics is a big thing, and we can talk about that for hours. Uh, matter of fact, we only have two and a half minutes this hour, though, so we can't talk about it for hours now. It's a big, we can talk about this some more, too. We need more 18-wheelers on the highway. We need more people to drive the 18-wheelers, but we can't make more 18-wheelers because there's not enough chips to put in the 18-wheelers to make them go. I'm not even sure they have 18 wheels anymore. They do, mostly. So we need, we need these trucks. We, there's a logistical bottleneck that we have, and a big chunk of that is, again, demographics. There was a weird whipsaw effect in the truck driving marketplace over the last year where trucks were just stopped. A lot of people got laid off, then hired back at huge rates, then laid off again, and then hired back, and then laid off again, and then hired back. And the average age of a truck driver is higher than the average age of most industries. I think people will agree with that. The average age of the truck driver has been getting older and older. 
that's a real problem. This is where automation may have a big piece, and there's a lot of money, lots of billions of dollars being spent on that right now, automating truck drivers. All right, uh, we're about out of time for this hour. If you would like to talk to us off the air, uh, the personal wealth coach actually gives fiduciary investment advice as well as portfolio management to people of high net worth. We have real live people that answer the phone. I know that's weird during the week. Uh, During the weekend, we have voicemail waiting. Uh, You can reach that line toll-free at 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. Or locally at 254-947-1111. All right. And you can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. You can sign up for our newsletter. You can contact us through the form. You can listen to recordings of the radio program going back quite a few years. Listen to us at the beginning of the pandemic and see what we had to say about this stuff. Hold hold our noses to the grindstone. No, no. feet to the fire, feet to the gr- something like that. Um, you can contact us through the form. You can email us directly at jeff at tpwc.com or jake at tpwc.com. Thank you very much for listening. We'll be back next hour with more of the Personal Wealth Coach. We've got lots of good stuff to talk about, and we'll talk about it then.